Today's scripture reading is Romans 8, 1 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sin, flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and happy new year. So glad you're here today. We are on the cusp of a great chapter in our study in Romans. Before we get into that, let me just thank you and give you a brief report. Uh, thank you for your year-end generosity to uh, this ministry. I'm pleased to tell you that not only did we end uh, 2014 ahead in general operating budget here, uh, not only were we able to retire another significant amount in our debt, we're down now to 616000 and still counting. But uh, to date, and our people are still counting, for the Christmas offering uh, as a church, we gave $842,000 for the activities of missions in the country of India. Praise the Lord. Part of the um, culture of our church is to give away as much as we possibly can and uh, seeing your generosity in uh, fulfilling that uh, call to the reach the people in India is such a great blessing, so encouraging. And our people are still counting, so that number I anticipate to go up. If you were not able to give or didn't give or um, now would like to give, um, we'd uh, love to still have you participate in that so that you can still give even though it's no longer a Christmas offering. It will be your January offering, and so you're still welcome to uh, participate in that. So thank you so much for your generosity as a church. such a privilege to be a part of a church that has a vision for the world and our role and how we can help reach unreached peoples. Romans 8. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today this text before us is so important and so lovely and so potentially life-changing that while I feel the weight of many sermons, I feel the weight of this one very significantly. I so want this passage to be clear and for your glory to be seen and for your people to be edified. I want a church that I love to leave today not only enamored with your beauty, but empowered to live in a broken world with broken bodies, with broken actions. And so I pray that you'd help me and help us, help me to be clear and help us to listen well and to apply well your word. So would you come now, Holy Spirit, please, and empower your word. Would you make it life to us and produce thoughts and desires in us that wouldn't be there unless you did it. And so we submit ourselves now to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite memories over the summer when my family was on sabbatical and we were touring England and particularly Scotland 
was a particular excursion that um, my wife and I and one of our sons took one morning. In the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, there is a massive volcanic rock structure that overlooks the city. It's called Arthur's Seat. It may be named after the legendary King Arthur, or it may also have been called the Archer's Seat, and people just didn't pronounce it very well, and it became Arthur's Seat. Regardless, it's a popular place for tourists and hikers and runners to go because you can overlook the entire city. And so one early morning, my wife and one of our sons and I decided to go out and and hike and run um, Arthur's Seat. And so we went off on this journey, partly running, partly walking, all the time huffing, And I'll tell you, to be able to get to the top of Arthur's seat is to see the expanse of the city of Edinburgh. It's absolutely beautiful. Arthur's seat is about a 1,000 feet in elevation, which is significant since it's so close to the North Sea. And from atop the Arthur's seat, you can see the castle of Edinburgh. You can see the Royal Mile that lines the city of Edinburgh. You can see the palace of Holyrood. And then you can see the green rolling hills of Scotland that are, that's the, the country is so famous for. As we were up top that summit, I could see places that we had been in the city. It looked very different from where we were. At ground level, the city was beautiful. But when you're at the summit, you see things that you would have never seen before. You get a new view of both where you've been, what you visited, and also places that you'd like to still go. And it was the summit that really changed what I see and what I feel if you mention this, the city Edinburgh. When I think of Edinburgh, I think of the view that I had from Arthur's seat. The summit was that beautiful. It changed how I saw really everything as it relates to the city. Today we come to the summit of the book of Romans. We come to chapter 8. And from this summit position, you're going to be able to see things in this book of, in this book called Romans, and, and also specifically in chapter 8, that will help you to not only see the message of the Bible, but also to see, I hope, the application of what Paul is driving at in this glorious book. We've walked through so many other chapters, all the while keeping Romans 8 in our mind. When we walked through Romans 1 to 3 in the darkness of human depravity, I kept telling you, it'll get better. Romans 8 is coming. When we are in um, chapters 4 and 5 and we learned about righteousness that comes by faith, I told you that it was a, a highlight of what was to come when we got to the to summit. In Romans chapter 6, we learned about the positional righteousness that we have in Christ. And in chapter 7, we saw the tension, the struggle that happens within the heart of every person who's a follower of Jesus. Of How do I follow Christ and yet at the same time? deal with the reality of my struggle with sin and Romans 8 now helps us to understand all of that and from the summit we can look back and see where we've been but what's more we can also look forward that in the next few months we'll be walking through Romans 9 through 11 some of the most challenging and deep passages in the entire Bible as we talk about the sovereignty of God and his mysterious work. We're going to then see chapters 12 to 16 as to how you apply the truths of Romans 8 into practical living and even areas of disagreement between believers. In chapter 8, we will see the beauty of a 
the believer's position in Christ, our spiritual adoption, what it means for us to have an identity that is rooted in the idea of being in Christ, how sanctification relates to all of this, how do you think about suffering, and what our final destiny looks like. So Romans 8 is a signature text. It is the summit of the book of Romans. It's a memorable place to be. And I hope that while you're here, you will linger, take in the view, be enamored by what you see, and then be motivated to walk down from this summit and to even leave the sanctuary today more motivated to follow Christ with a new passion because you've been to the top and you've seen the landscape of the scriptures. Today what I want to do is show you the logic and the beauty of the first four verses of Romans. I intended to do all eight verses and then I got in and realized there's no way. It's just too beautiful. We got to stop and linger. So there's a logic and there's a beauty to this text. Romans 8, 1 to 4 is logical because Paul is making an argument in the book of Romans. And it is beautiful because he is overwhelmed with the power of what he is talking about. So what I want to do today is to do first um, look at four awe-inspiring phrases from this text and then make six implications or applications of how do you live in light of Romans chapter 8. The first is found in verse 1. And it is the phrase, no condemnation. Look at verse 1 in your Bible. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, that verse could very well be the sum total summary of the entire Bible. That verse, there is therefore now no condemnation, is the sum total reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It begins with the word therefore. The word tips us off as to the fact that what is coming in these verses is a implication or a conclusion or the resolution of what has been previously said. At a minimum, it refers to what we had heard in chapter 7, specifically verses 24 and 25, where Paul wrestled with his wretchedness. He cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25, he answers it, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. And Paul then enters into Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore, in light of chapter 7, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So at a minimum, it means chapter 7, but I think it also could include all of chapters 1 through 7, that Paul has now come to the inferential conclusion or the resolution of everything that he has said in chapters 1 to 7. In other words, you could take this one phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not only make it the theme of the entire book of the Romans, of, of, for the entire book of Romans, the theme of the entire Bible, and for that matter, I hope today, the theme for your life. Paul says, there is no condemnation. He inserts the word now. It's interesting that he does that. There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no need to put that word there. He could just say, could, could just have said, there is therefore no condemnation. But he puts the word now in there. Why does he do that? He does so because he's indicating that there is a, a new epic, a, a new dispensation, a, a new moment in biblical history has been ushered in. 
Previously, the characteristic pattern of history was one that was marked by sin and failure and the reign of death. We learned previously that God even gave the law so that it would expose the unrighteousness of mankind. In other words, Romans really 1 to 3, and for that matter, really 1 to 5, is there in order to show us that God is holy, we are not, and that's a problem. So when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, he is saying that something new, something glorious, something unusual and special is at work. There is therefore now. He doesn't mean only that this idea of no condemnation relates to the past. He means that there's something so glorious, so important, so life-altering about this idea of no condemnation that there is a present reality to it. And I hope that when you leave today, you will not only understand no condemnation, my hope and prayer is that you will live in it tomorrow. I keep using the word condemnation, and I don't want to assume that we all know what that word means. In the Greek, the word condemnation means to judge someone as guilty and to punish them. So it's the combination of both. That's unusual because in English or in... um, We don't really have a word that captures both of those things. And even in our system of justice, we have a, a trial phase that results in a verdict and then a punishment phase. And those are two separate Um, components of our justice system. Well, the word condemned captures both. To be condemned is both to be found guilty and to be sentenced. It means that before God, sinful human beings are both guilty and condemned. That hanging over us because of our rebellion is both our guilt and our judgment. That we are not neutral when it comes to God. And the law only made that condition more evident, more clear. So the beauty of Romans 8 is the unbelievable statement that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that there is no longer the charge of guilt and there is no penalty connected with our rebellion against God. It is both. I mean, one of those would just be enough. It'd be one just to be declared not guilty. It'd be another just to be pardoned. But the beauty of no condemnation means that you have been declared not only no longer guilty, but you also are no longer liable of judgment or punishment. And it isn't just for what you've done in the past and also for what you have done in the future, but it means that you live in that reality right now, today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means something so radically and eternally and gloriously has changed in our relationship with God. It means that our past sins have been forgiven, that our future sins are forgiven, and even now we stand this very moment in the full, beautiful splendor of a new relationship with our Creator because of the finished work of Jesus. I struggled to try and think of another word, an English word, that captures this idea of no condemnation. You could think of words like forgiveness or pardon or amnesty, but none of those really work. Immunity gets closer, but that doesn't even fully capture everything of what is happening. No condemnation means that God has legally declared a certain group of people, and and by that I mean He hasn't declared this over all of creation. 
He only declares this over those who are in Christ. We'll talk about that more in a moment. That means this, that if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, if you've not received Christ as your Savior, what I say, no condemnation, that does not apply to you. The scary reality, if you're outside of Christ, is this very moment over your life is the charge of your guilt and the intended consequence of that guilt, namely eternal damnation. And so the call to receive Christ today is not just to be forgiven, it is to be saved from yourself and from eternal damnation under the judgment of a holy and righteous God. So no condemnation means that certain people, those who are in Christ, are not only free of their guilt, they are also free of the punishment related to the crimes that they have committed. So it is not just that their record has been expunged, rather their record has been exchanged for another record, and they have been given a new relationship with the very God who was formerly against them, and now He is for them. It means that everything has changed. Something so fundamental to who you are. Something so basic in how you relate with your Creator. Something so critical in regards to one's eternal destiny. At the core of who and what you are has been altered. Has been changed. You have been saved. And when you understand this idea of no condemnation, it is like coming to the summit where suddenly you can see the landscape of your life so differently because no condemnation at the summit changes how you view everything. It changes, as you'll see in Romans, how you view sin in the world. It changes how you view your own pursuit of godliness. It changes how you view suffering. It changes how you view the devil. It changes how you view temptation. This idea of no condemnation is the lens through which now we see everything in the world. It's the summit. No condemnation. Here's the second thing. The text also says that we are free in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That little phrase, in Christ Jesus, refers to the union that those who receive Christ have in Him. Meaning that when we receive Christ, God places us in Him so that when He died, we died. When He rose, we rose. The pronouncement, therefore, of no condemnation can only happen because of the payment that Christ makes. So that union with Him becomes critical because the freedom that comes with no condemnation is not just given That freedom is actually purchased. And it was Jesus, by virtue of his death, that purchased our freedom. Verse 2 then explains how this happens. How can there be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? We have the first of two fours. The first one in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What Paul says here is that before Christ, or without Christ, you are captive to the law of sin and death. The scary reality is that the law condemns us, the law accuses us, the law damns us, and we're powerless to do anything to change our captivity to the law. We are broken deeply within us, so that what we want to do, we don't do, and the things that we know we shouldn't do, we keep on doing those things And that bondage to the law is the characteristic pattern 
of the world, the characteristic pattern of every human being. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit then comes and sets you free in Christ Jesus from this law of sin and death. And so what he's saying is that this captivity that was once a part of your life, captive to the law of sin and death, now there's a new power that has come and released you from that captivity. A new spirit of the, or a new law by the Spirit. He says that it's described as the law of the Spirit of life. It's interesting that we have here the first reference to the Holy Spirit because he will now pray, play a very prominent role in Romans chapter 8. He'll be mentioned 13 in, of 39 verses. And what you're going to see in Romans 8 is a close connection between the role of the Spirit and the role of what it means to be in Christ, such that the union that believers have in Christ is so linked to the Holy Spirit that to not have the Spirit is, in effect, to not be in Christ. Look at Romans 8 and verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see it? It isn't just that our condemnation was paid for by Jesus, but it is now that we are set free and this new realm that we are in is characteristic by the idea of being in Christ and being in Christ is characterized by being under this new law, which is the new law of the Spirit. So Christ and the Spirit are so absolutely linked that Paul pictures them as virtually inseparable. That means this, that at the end of our study of Romans chapter 8, you must know the Holy Spirit better than you know Him today. If not, Either you have failed or I have failed. But you cannot walk away from Romans 8 without an understanding not only the glory of God's grace, but a greater love for the Holy Spirit and a greater commitment to walk by Him and live in Him and to know Him and to follow Him and to pursue Him. And this Spirit is the Spirit of the risen Christ given to us so that we could walk in union with Jesus. You must know the Spirit differently at the end of these weeks. Christ and the Spirit are so unified, they're, they're, they're inseparable. You can think of them as wetness is to water. At some point this illustration breaks down, but wetness and water are different, and yet they are so linked in that if you're in the water and you're going to invite someone to jump into the water, you might say to them, not just jump in the water, You would say, come on, get wet. And while wet is different than water, they're so linked together that they're almost used synonymously. Again, not that the Spirit and Christ are the same person, but they are so linked and complementary. Or if you saw someone who was clearly wet, you may ask, you might ask them, how did, where did you get the water? Did someone pour water on you? Because there's a connection between water and wetness in the same way there's a connection between Christ and the Spirit. To be in Christ means to be under the law of the Spirit of life. And notice that he puts the word life in there. He could have just said, for the law of the Spirit. But no, he says, for the law of the Spirit of life. Why is he saying that? Because the power of sin has been canceled, and it's been eclipsed with a new power, this power of the new law of the Spirit. And this power was meant not just to forgive us of our former sins, but also to help us to live every single day by the new power of the Holy Spirit. 
The problem, though, for many of us is we've not made good connections between no condemnation and how do you live when you walk out of the sanctuary today? How do you make the connection between no condemnation and what you think about yourself when you walk back into the office tomorrow morning? We made no connection between no condemnation and how you think about yourself in terms of your identity. So to to think about what Paul is addressing in Romans 8 is to think not only about the past or the future, but it is also to think about how we are to live now. If we understand Romans 8 correctly, if we really get in the very fiber of our being what it means that no condemnation has been said over us, then the effect of that is there will be a new level of freedom in your life. Because our past has been declared free, our future is declared free, and our present is declared free. So everything about the Christian life is marked by grace and freedom and life. It's not just that Jesus came to die for your previous sins and to cancel the things you've done in the past. He certainly came to do that. But he also came so that by his spirit, you could leverage that reality, that positional fixation that Jesus made over you, that statement that he said over you, and now you could live in it every day of your life, or at least fight to live in that. What it means to have him say no condemnation over you. No condemnation, free in Christ. Here's the third statement. At the summit, we see this third statement. He condemned sin. Verse 3 is, a, is the longest of all the verses. Explains what is leading to this unbelievable statement in verse 1. How did... How is it possible that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Notice the powerlessness. The law couldn't do it because it was weakened by the flesh. The flesh was the problem. We talked about this in Romans 7. The law wasn't the problem, the flesh was. And so how did God solve the problem of the insufficiency of the law and the flesh working together? Here's what he did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The the focus in verse 3 shifts. The focus in verse 3 shifts now to the work of God. There is now no condemnation in verse 1. That was a statement that God makes over us. Then he explains, secondly, in verse 2, how the law of the Spirit now has set us free. Now verse 3 is explaining what God has done. And what we see is the stunning display of God's kindness, that God moves to rescue sinful people who couldn't rescue themselves, that God is the one who saves sinners, that God is the one who makes the sacrifice, God is the one who provides the way for reconciliation. So listen to me, as you marvel at the beauty of what it means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as you see the beauty of what that is, keep in mind that the ultimate beauty of redemption is not the people who were saved, but the ultimate beauty of redemption is the God who saved these undeserving people. The beauty of heaven is not just going to be the millions of people that God redeemed, but it will be the singular reality that that God, that God rescued me. And the way he rescued me was not just giving a sacrifice, but instead making his own son the sacrifice. Notice what God does in verse 3. 
He sends His own Son as the means of redemption. God rescues people at great personal cost. Secondly, it says that He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Just think of that, of what that means. Previously, we heard even in this verse that the law was weakened by the flesh. The flesh is the problem. Sinful flesh is the is, is the epicenter of our rebellion. The flesh is what makes mankind hostile to God. You, you heard earlier, when it was read, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, and here comes the Son of God into the world and takes on the garments of this broken, malfunctioning, hostile environment that's all wrapped up in what it means for the flesh to be the flesh. And Jesus comes in the likeness of this sinful flesh. What's more, the Son was sent for sin. It means that Jesus didn't just bring a sacrifice, that He was the sacrifice. That Jesus became the sin offering. So just think of this. God rescues sinful people. He does so by sending His own Son. That Son comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. The very characteristic pattern of His body is the example in terms of humanity of what it means to rebel against God. That is the epicenter of what it means to be hostile. He comes and He offers Himself. And then it says... He condemned sin in the flesh. It is not a a mistake or a coincidence that Paul uses the word condemned. He uses it so closely to verse 1 so that we will see the connection that God declares no condemnation over those who are in Christ because He poured out our condemnation for sin on Jesus. What does it mean he condemns sin in the flesh? This is the only place in the Bible where Paul uses language like this. And what it means is this. It means that in the very location of the rebellion, the flesh, that the location of the rebellion became the location of restoration. God loves to do things like that. They sinned in the flesh. They rebelled in the flesh. He sends his son in the flesh in order to rescue them. It means that sin was defeated. It was defeated in the flesh. Here's how John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, summarizes this truth. Jesus not only blotted out sin's guilt and brought us nigh to God, He also vanquished sin as a power and set us free from its enslaving dominion. And this could not have been done except in the flesh. The battle was joined and triumph secured in that same flesh which in us is the seat and agent of sin. So sin is not just cleansed. It's not just wiped away. It's not just forgiven. Sin was paid for. It was atoned. It was purchased. You were not condemned in Christ because sin was condemned in Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to remember that your redemption was purchased. And through the purchase of Christ's death, sin was defeated, it was vanquished, it was conquered. In a moment, we'll talk about that. How does that relate to temptation? It means that there is a divine condemnation over sin. That it was all poured out on Jesus so that you could receive both the 
the blessing of what it means to have no condemnation and the freedom of what it means to have no condemnation. So when you go back to a sin, and when you sin in any way, you are going back to something that was not only paid for by Christ, but it was vanquished and determined to be no longer controlling. The fourth statement. Those who walk according to the Spirit. Verse 4 says, In order in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That phrase, in order, tells us that this is the effect. So again, Paul's making an argument. He's making a statement in verse 1. He explains it in two ways, in verses 2 and 3. And now he's showing us what the effect of this beautiful reality is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us what does it mean it means that everything that god demanded everything that the law demands everything that righteousness demands is completely and fully satisfied by the person and the work of jesus And in so doing, what Paul is doing here is helping us to see the ramifications of what no condemnation in Christ Jesus really means. So back to my analogy of being at the summit. When I'm at the summit and I'm seeing the city of Edinburgh, I can see the places that I've already been, but I can also see the places that I have not yet been. And the beauty of the summit is that you can celebrate what you've already seen, but it also creates an appetite for there's something more. I would long to go here. I would like to go there. I'd like to see this. And the beauty of Romans 8 is it shows you the summit of where you could still yet go, which is why Paul is saying this has been fulfilled in us, and he uses this phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul has in mind in Romans 8 not just theological realities, but practical ways in which we are going to live this out. To say that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us is to say that Jesus, by virtue of his life and death, perfectly satisfied all of the demands of the law. And then to say that the people who fit that character quality, those who have had the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled, He then says that their characteristic is they walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what he's doing is he's moving from this positional reality to something very practical. Why why is this important for you to know? You need to see this because you can't walk away from Romans 8 just with gratitude for no condemnation. You have to have at a minimum that. You have to leave today thinking in your heart, Oh God, thank you that there's no condemnation over me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Gratitude is where you have to start, but instead also you must be filled with motivation to see how this really works out in your life. That gratitude should then shift and be poured out in how you walk every moment of your life. That At the summit, you're not only wowed by what you see, but you're wooed to go on even further. That's why Paul says, walk. Those who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, what are the implications of this? I want to help you understand how to work this out. And one of my fears is that, my fear is that you would, 
walk through Romans 8 like you walk through an aquarium or a zoo. That's cool, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool, that's neat, but you don't leave with anything. I mean, a zoo is not intended for you to go home with anything, at least not legally, right? Like, where'd you get that snake? Put it back. I'm supposed to take it, right? Instead, I want this to be more like a visit to a memorial where you go in and there's a message that's meant as you walk out to, 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 to be stuck in your mind and heart for a long time. In the negative sense, if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Holocaust Museum is not there just to tell a story. It is to tell a story that is not to be forgotten. So don't walk through Romans 8 like it's a zoo. You need to walk through it like it's a memorial that's meant to do something to you that as you leave, that something is different about you. Let me give you six implications of the ways in which I think that this text should be lived out. There are many, many more ways to live this out than six, so you've got to figure out how else to work this out. But here are six that I offer to you. First, in regards to worship. What should be your aim every Sunday as we gather together in corporate worship? Why do you come? Why should you sing? What's the motivation to listen intently to a sermon? You know why we're here, or at least why we should be here? Because we are, we are reconnecting our broken lives in a broken world filled with broken actions to a truth that we need to remember. And that truth is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I just look at my own life or look at the world or look at things around me, all I can see is ineptness and brokenness and failure and this no condemnation over me. It doesn't make sense unless I come to Romans 8 and I'm reminded of these truths that I live in a broken world, but I have this beautiful statement that God has made over me. And we need corporate gathering in worship because our affection and our attention to this no condemnation mantra leaks happens so fast secondly prayer so worship prayer tomorrow morning we start prayer week at college park and how does romans 8 relate to prayer here's how prayer is the means that i first express my gratitude to god for what he has done for me and it is also my connection to the grace that i so desperately need you realize don't you that it is only not condemned people who are given permission to approach the throne of grace to receive help in time of need if you have been declared not condemned then god promises to supply the help that you need to walk by the spirit and so prayer then becomes a regular daily reconnecting with the spiritual truth that's been put over me so i'm called to pray to pray in the holy spirit or as jude says to pray in the holy spirit and in so doing keep myself in the love of god doesn't mean that i fall out of the love of god but rather it means that i'm connected to the very heart and the love of god and so i pray i pray i pray for gratitude out of gratitude and for grace because this no condemnation has ushered me into the throne room of the king of kings and lord of lords third evangelism how does romans 8 relate to evangelism if you want 2015 to be a year where you take some bold and maybe new intentional steps in evangelism do you know what you need to do You need to relish in the beauty of what is here in Romans chapter 8 and what it means for God to have declared you condemnation free. 
When I came down off of Arthur's seat, guess what I, the first thing I did when I came into the hotel room with the kids who didn't go with us on the hike, I told them the beautiful sights that we saw. I told them about it because I was enamored with the beauty of this, this vision of what I had seen as I had seen over the top of the entire city. I talked about it. And I want to tell you that if you get Romans 8 in your heart, you will have gospel witness on your tongue. You do not fight the fear of sharing your faith with guilt. It won't work. You fight the fear of sharing your faith with beauty. The stunning reality of what God has done for you in Christ. You become enamored with what you found, and then you share it with other people. Don't believe me? How many people have you told this week where you found gas at like a buck fifty? <laughs> I mean, I see all over Twitter, Facebook, buck fifty-seven in Brownsburg, buck seventy-five here and there and every place. We are relentless in our desire to share and talk about things that we discover. And my point is this: it's a part of the natural human psyche to want to share what we've discovered. The problem is, is that we suppress the beauty of the gospel and we need to see it for what it is. And when you see it for what it is, you will not be able to help yourself in sharing it. You don't need guilt. What you need to see is the glory of it. Fourth, identity. How does identity relate to Romans chapter 8? No condemnation is the most important statement about who you really are if you are a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you, you haven't lived. You don't know what it's like to be secure. You don't know what it's like to be safe until you have the very basic fiber of who and what you are altered by coming and putting your trust in Jesus. When you put your trust in Christ, no condemnation now becomes your identity. It defines you like nothing else can. So this week you'll come back from Christmas break and the New Year's break and everyone will have their new things. And you know it's going to happen, don't you? There will be serial comparison. Do I have the right clothes? Did I get the right technology? I mean, if you're a student... And, you know, and you're going back to school or college. I mean, it's like serial comparison, isn't it? I mean, I was, I was laughing this week. My boys were rolling up their pants, you know, their jeans. And I looked at them. They're like, what's so funny? I said, I used to do that. I said, I could do that if I wanted, you know, and I could peg my pants. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, and kids, just let me tell you this. Be really careful about laughing at your parents' old pictures and how nerdy they look. Because it's coming back, all right? So I'm just telling you. I, I just determined I'm not throwing away any more ties, no more shirts. I'm just going to hang on. Knit ties, they're coming back. Flannel, you know, is way back in. So you just don't throw anything away because you never know. Wingtip loafers, they're all going to come back eventually. Just enough time, it'll all come back. So you walk into school, and the question is, what, so what, what's, what kind of clothing do cool people wear? How do you walk when you're in the in crowd? What kind of bag? Do you have a burlap bag? Do you have a backpack? A man purse? Woman purse? What, what do you have? What, do you hold your books like this, like this, like this? I mean, how do you, what do you do? I mean, what, what is, you could walk into a school or a business, and by the way, teenagers and students, it's not just like, this ends when you're 18, you become an adult, you just hide it better, but inside you're like, mm, you feel the same thing, so just telling you. Just the price tags are bigger. And, 
And where is your security? You, you go by how you look, what your friends think of you, what sort of appearance you have and everything else. You will drive yourself and others around you crazy. You will be miserable because you will be an idolater trying to grab your identity in things that can never hold the weight of who and what you are. And instead, the Bible offers you to an, an identity that helps persevere you through all sorts of trends and all sorts of trials, through all sorts of different peoples that you come in contact with. And the identity is, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. No one loves me more than God. No one has paid for me more than Him. And no one cherishes me greater than He and what He has done for me in the person and work of Jesus. My identity is in Him. That's the beauty of this chapter. Let's talk about guilt. Maybe you look back on 2014 and you have some pretty big regrets. Or maybe as you look at the trajectory of your life in the past, you have some pretty significant misgivings. Maybe when your kids came home for the holidays and as they left, you just sat around and thought, what do we, where, do we, where do we miss it? What happened? And you go to bed at night wondering, what could we have done? What should we have done? Maybe you're in the midst of a trial and you wonder, is this because of something that I've, I've done? Is God angry with me? Maybe around the holidays you you had to love a really hard person and it didn't go very well and you kind of replay it and wish you could have done things a little differently. And you know what Romans 8 does with guilt? It reminds us that we are not under condemnation. It reminds us that all of our sins and our inadequacies and our failures are paid for by Christ. It reminds us that God is fundamentally for us and not against us. It means that even in our brokenness, even in our shortcomings, even in our failures, that God is still kind to us and He still loves us and His His arms are open wide for broken people. And then it means out of the reservoir of God's kindness to us, you pour out your imperfect love and your imperfect kindness to hard people in your life because you know that at the end of the day, their response is not the end determined, is not the end determiner of whether or not you've been successful. Because at the end of the day, your identity is rooted in no condemnation. And finally, how does no condemnation relate to godliness? No condemnation becomes the fuel for more godliness in your life. And the new year is often a time for new resolutions, isn't it? Always makes me laugh, all of the new fitness ads that come on the television, only to become the place that we hang our laundry on, right? The beauty of Romans 8 is that it serves as a great motivator. When you understand this, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it, it, when you get it and you, and you see the landscape and you, and you can behold the implications of it, it becomes a motivator for Bible meditation and memorization and more prayer and generosity. If you're looking for some help in some of those arenas as to how you could 
maybe think about a plan or some action steps. We have a blog that will be on the church's website. It may even be there now. You don't need just more accountability. You don't need someone just to get in my grill and tell me, have you read your Bible this week? Is that what you need? It's not going to work. You know what you need? You, you, you need Accountability will help a little. Don't get me wrong. But what you need is a vision of what godliness looks like under the banner of no condemnation. Of what it means to come in prayer to your God who has declared his love over you and has completely forgiven you. It, it helps us to deal with temptations because it helps you to see the silly, trifle, and temporary pleasures that the world and the devil and our flesh offers us. It's sort of like, do you want to go to a movie or do you want to go to Grand Canyon? And what the Bible offers us is the real thing, not an image of the real thing. So the power of no condemnation is that it becomes the fuel for godliness. It becomes the solution for our guilt. It becomes the grounding in our identity. It becomes the, the, the means by which we share our faith. It becomes the motivation for prayer. It becomes the reason that we come to worship. And so my invitation to you, church, is to come to the summit of Romans 8 and to see the beauty of what is here over the next six, six weeks, to see the grace that God pours out, to see the work of a sovereign God on your behalf, to see the sacrifice of the Son, to see the condemnation of sin in Him, to see the power of the Spirit lived in and through you, to see the beauty of what it means that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and to live in that not only to day, but to live in that every day for the rest of your life, because this banner over us is compelling and beautiful and stunning. And it was meant to set us free. So my question is, what do you see? What do you see in Romans 8? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to see things that we could not see today unless you helped us. That you would apply this idea of no condemnation to our understanding of guilt and identity. You'd help us to pursue godliness, to pray deeply, worship with new vigor. to share our faith in a way that we've not before because we have seen the landscape of redemption afresh and anew. And church, while we're just wrapping up the service and before benediction and I dismiss you, would you just take a moment where you are and just talk to the Lord about this reality of no condemnation and where it needs to be applied in your life. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's identity. Maybe it's godliness. You, you know. Maybe it's putting your faith and trust in becoming a Christian today. So would you take a moment and just talk to the Lord about the needs in your life? Father, help us to live now this week as we leave the sanctuary, as we enter into the world 
Help us to live under this banner of no condemnation. Help us to see the beauty of what it means and to know practically how it works. Give us grace to apply it by your Spirit in so many ways. Thank you for the power of what it means that we have been set free in Christ. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Live in the beauty of no condemnation, beginning right now. God bless you, church. Love you. Thanks for coming.